0: Last month, Mianjin published powerful and heart-wrenching essay, A Conspiracy of Witches. In it, author and PhD candidate Anna Spargo-Ryan examines the disturbing history that ultimately led to the legalisation of abortion, and that may emerge once more if those rights are removed. Anna will join me later in the hour. Writer and creative writing lecturer Ronnie Scott has released his debut novel, The Adversary is a witty, moving, quietly absurd and wonderfully observed book about a close friendship on the point of change. Set over eight weeks where nothing much yet somehow a lot happens, Ronnie Scott joins me soon to talk about learning to write a novel and the exacting work that goes into seemingly effortless prose.
2: Triple R on FM Digital online via the app.
0: A smart man once told me to be careful around gifts as they're often more complicated than they first appear. The savviest recipients plumb their gifts for hidden questions, such as what secret agenda has been furthered by this gift and why have I been chosen to receive it. And so we meet the unnamed protagonist of The Adversary, a wry, witty, moving, and wonderfully observed novel about a close friendship on the point of change. It's the debut novel of writer and creative writing lecturer Ronnie Scott. I caught up with Ronnie to discuss the exacting work that goes into seemingly effortless prose. Ronnie Scott, welcome to Backstory.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's really uh, been such a, a pleasure getting to know this book. Uh, I've I've spent uh, most of the weekend reading through it and then flicking back over to reread some of your wonderfully witty turns of phrase. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the time frame over which you wrote this book. I know it's a weird place to start, um, but perhaps actually before we do that, let's uh, introduce a little bit of what this story is about. Would you like to take that away, Ronnie?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, so The Adversary uh, is about a, um, a best friendship, um, a very close friendship between two gay men. There's a narrator and there's a guy named Dan, and they live together in a house in Brunswick. Um, and when we meet them at the start of the book, they have probably uh, I guess, exhausted each other. Uh, I think that they have met each other at a time when you have sort of finally met your people, I guess. And, you know, because the narrator's about 21, Dan's a little bit older. Um, so they've been very, very taken with each other and they express it in different ways. Um, and they've been living together for a couple of years. And when the book begins, I think that they, they've both realized maybe uh, again, expressing it in different ways uh, and at slightly different paces that they need to change their friendship in some way. Uh, And so Dan has, has met a boyfriend um, named Lachlan uh, and the narrator is kind of a shut in. He doesn't necessarily want to um, want to go out and meet other people, um, but probably does understand that he has to and so over the course of the book does that quite reluctantly he's sort of he's a very reluctant character he's kind of dragged out of the house by Dan and other people um and I think that that the action of the book is really around um how how you change a friendship when unlike I guess professional relationships or romantic relationships there isn't necessarily a script that you can follow um and I think that friendships are both very uh kind of passionate things um and very important things in our lives, but they're also things that that have slightly different arcs and slightly different ways of sustaining themselves. Um, and the kinds of problems that come up in friendships are quite different from the ones that that come up in, in our other significant relationships. So the story of the book is how their friendship changes and survives.
0: Yeah, it's actually, it's a story and a friendship that will be familiar, of course, to many of us, but you render it in such a sort of, you know, subtly hilarious way that I found myself, uh, you know, laughing um, at throughout because you've kind of, you know, really there's like a quiet humour that runs throughout all of this um the narrator whose head we're very much in um, really does have a bag of neuroses about the world and has a wonderful way of expressing things. And this is the real delight of this book. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about it um, in terms of time frame, because it sort of feels like a book that has been written over a very long period of time, but at the same time has a sense of immediacy. Uh, It's set over the course of just 8 weeks but and not a lot happens but a lot happens. Uh so I want to talk a little bit about how long this book took to write <laughs> and and also uh the device of trying to set something over such a short period of time.
1: Yeah, I like talking about both those things together um because I think of them together. Um I I mean I played with the time frame a lot and settled on 8 weeks because it just seemed like the right amount of time for things to happen uh in a for things to happen that, that could be sort of, sort of minimal, like, as you say, not a, not a whole lot goes on, but to gesture towards kind of bigger changes in these friendships. Like I, I kind of liked dropping you into the story without a whole heap of history or context. None of the characters really have a lot of history or context, um, but to sort of bring them to the brink of change, you know, it's almost like a novella or a short story in that way. So it's eight weeks. Um, and also I wanted it to take place over a summer um Because I wanted a plausible way for a character to not have a whole heap to do. Um, and to be able to go out of his mind a little bit thinking about, thinking about his friend and sort of be able to apply himself to this friendship in a way that was quite, quite focused. But also, you know, you have the sense throughout the story that if he um, had something else going on in his life over this eight weeks, then maybe it would be a little bit less neurotic and a little bit less, um, less intense and strange. So I think that there are good things about being able to focus on your social life, um, in that concentrated way, but also it's possible that he's, that he's kind of made things worse in that situation under those same circumstances and for those same reasons. Um, but it took me a lot longer than eight weeks to write. It took me six or seven years um, and I guess the reason is that I had to, so I, I came to this novel having worked as an editor and having worked as a nonfiction writer and an essayist, uh, and I'd, I'd, written short stories, but not for a long time. I really had to learn how to write a novel. Um, I had to learn things like, uh how, um, how a structure could develop. I had to learn how to do that thing, I guess, that we like from books where you can tell something in the first person. Um, and that voice can connect closely to a reader ideally, but there's also a sense that there's like the voice of the author or the voice of the book kind of poking around the edges. Um, which I think I had to do through a lot of trial and error. Like I never really knew, like, it's not like I ever really figured out how to do that. It was more a matter of, of getting the balance right in the way that you inhabited a character. And then the way that hopefully things like, like the structure or the other characters kind of, kind of are able to tell a bigger story. That's the kind of stuff that I think happens in a novel that doesn't happen always in other kinds of writing. Although I guess it happens in essays as well, but I had to, I had to figure it out and I had to figure it out sort of by, by drafting it and doing it. Um, I think Uh, I was saying to someone the other day, like, I'm not such a great conceptual thinker. It's not like I could conceive of the novel and then like execute it. I kind of had to, had to write it and get to the end and then had to take some time away from it and give it to readers and think, okay, well, what is it about? What is it really about? What's the best way to get there? Um, I
0: think that's really paid off though uh, and and it's part of the reason I asked this question because there's a seeming effortlessness to the writing that can only come from a great deal of effort and, and I love uh, discussions that expose that because you really do get to this great humour of, uh, you know, that great relatable um, sense of what it is really like to be in a, a friendship group, um, to have your sort of weirdnesses butt up against other people's Um, and to sort of have people see things in you or different people see different things in you um, and for you to kind of assimilate that into yourself. So you've got this incredibly sort of witty, relatable, um, you know, like narrative going on throughout the whole book that I thought this has taken a lot of work to construct and it's really paid off. I want you to talk a little bit about the writing of this book, uh, the line-by-line line writing, because you do have such a wonderful turn of phrase. Uh, you've kind of made me uh, take a look at, uh, you know, the way you use language. Uh, you've kind of turned it inside out a little bit at certain points. You've also used uh, wonderful little images, uh, your central character who's never named uh, so that one can really relate to this character, Uh Looks at everything through a particular lens. So, say for example, there's this paragraph here, quite early in the book. Um, Before I'd left my membership to Brunswick Bars, let my membership to Brunswick Bars expire. A trainer had written on the whiteboard. Remember, summer bodies are made in winter. It sounded like an old saw trotted out by some Scandinavian detective, waking, waiting for the lake to thaw and divulge its many bodies, creating a grisly wealth of summer overtime. And I, I kind, of, I kind of think this is perfect because it really is, you know, the way that this character sort of, you know, it's, it, there's a sort of faux naivety in it. Um, you know, in a character that's actually quite sophisticated and quite likes sort of rolling words around in his mouth. And even if the meaning is not entirely clear, which is a, which is something owed, owned in another exchange of characters. Did you hit upon a style of writing particular to this narrator, or is it something that, that sort of has evolved in your own style that you really wanted to sort of, you know, ground in the narrator's voice?
1: That's such a good question. Um, yeah, thank you for asking it. I think that, uh, because I was, because I knew that I had to learn how to write a novel, I decided to make things easier on myself by at least writing it in first person. Um, but the thing that, that the voice, the way that the voice ended up being is quite different from my own and the worldview was quite different from my own. I mean, I'm a, I'm a 34 year old man. This is a 21 a year old, very kind of intense young person. And he's quite, uh, quite grim as well. Like I, I think that the reason that that, that, that line, the one that you just read works is that it tells us, it tells us something about his world, his worldview, which is that he's liable to see something kind of innocent and connected to something a little bit fantastic. So there's some sort of magic in it and some kind of youthiness or naivety in it, but there's also some sort of grit, some, some kind of macabre spirit to it as well. And I think that that's, that's something that informs a lot of the way that he moves through the book. Um, But it's funny, like when I, when I started writing it, I, I was kind of just writing imaginary things as though they had happened to me and as and the way that I would respond to them. And it started to click the more I got a sense of who the character should be in order for the story to take place and then was able to kind of to pair the voice into something that made sense for him. Um, and then I think that you... Uh, I guess because I, because I write at volume, like I, like I said before, like I'm not so good at thinking and then writing. I'm much better at just like blurting out sentences and then pairing them back and looking at them later and looking for the right ones. Um, I think that when you do that, you just give yourself a lot of options. So you can kind of pick the best sentence out of the four sentences that you write that introduces the idea of the gym. Uh, you know, in that case, um, or anything else that you're introducing in the book. So I, I really think it's almost like a cheats way of writing, but it's the way that I do it, where you just have to give yourself lots of choices and then you can kind of pick one. Um, and I think that that hopefully gives it a feeling that things are deliberate and kind of and and selective. Um, and you can hopefully select the thing that tells you the most about the character. And I, <laughs>
0: It's a, it's a good way of putting it. Uh, if you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Ronnie Scott about his wonderful debut novel, The Adversary, uh, which is, uh, you know, sounds like a very dramatic title for what is essentially an incredibly relatable book that has drama, but the kind of drama that we could all sort of imagine ourselves getting into, particularly in our 20s, which is when this book is set. Um, You've really, you know, to, to get back to the matter of language because I think this book is very much one of delighting in language uh, in a sort of quiet witticism, the, the character really has, uh, you know, the, I alluded earlier to... Uh, the characters sort of talking about how they dislike the sound of words, mm. uh, and then imbuing them with meaning. And I feel like that was sort of a little knowing nod to some of the the ways you've used language in this book, where you've you've tried to uh, you know refresh, I guess, uh, imagery by by matching it up with maybe slightly unusual uh, types of um, of metaphors or. Uh, images for example like I think at one stage the sunset lands like a a bath bomb or something of that nature which I thought was kind of delightful um you've also kind of you know really you know pushed away at words uh to see how they work did you find yourself doing this at one point of the rewrite really interrogating your use of language trying a word here pulling it out again it sort of feels like some of it's been written at that kind of micro level as well
1: yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think that that's one of the advantages of writing a short novel as well is that you can kind of focus on individual words and sentences really closely. Um, but I, but I don't think that I. It's not like I did that really closely at one particular stage of the edit. Um, uh, although, actually, the the copy editor who worked on this book with me at um, at the publisher, um, Johannes Jacob, is this really incredible, like precise, exacting editor. Um, who definitely did that with me at a few different stages. Uh, and that was really rewarding. It was just the best edit that I've ever had. And a great, a great editor is, is a, a gift basically. Um, But I think that I didn't think of structure and sentences as all that, all that separate when I was writing it, I guess whenever I was doing like a big structural overhaul, it's another opportunity to look at the sentences, to look at the order of um, at the order in which the words appear and try to get some kind of balance in there that's like uh, I guess what you want is something that's kind of novel and delightful, but not, but, but that doesn't take you out of the story unless it's kind of meant to call attention to itself. Um, And also something that can, can be kind of, or, you know, if it draws attention to itself, that it's still, that it's still smooth or that it's worth it or that the, the strangeness that it gives to language. Yeah. Is, is, kind of worth it and makes you glad that you have been made to pay attention to it rather than just kind of getting through to the next sentence or the next paragraph so it's a it's a weird balance to hit and I I think uh you know George Saunders the novelist and short story writer I read something by him recently about um about the way that he writes and he I think his metaphor is like a speedometer it's like it's like a little needle that that kind of like slow, almost gets to the right, to the right point, And then finally you've just, you've just got a sense that the paragraph kind of fits together because you've looked at it enough times or you've, you've kind of moved one word over here and taken it out of there. And finally it just sort of balances, right? It's like often a sentence in the middle of the paragraph. Uh, it, it depends on the balance of the sentences around it. And I think that it's something that's almost like an aesthetic exercise, um, when you're trying to when you're trying to make those those uh, those things all work together, so I think you do just have to spend time with your drafts and trust that they get better the more kind of care and attention you put into them. Um,
0: yeah, and I, I do. I want to talk a little bit more about the narrative in the book as well because uh, there's a wonderful, um, you know, it, you expose wonderfully this this whole uh, we are both um, being treated horribly and treating other people horribly uh, type of feeling, except, you know, no one is really an asshole in this book. Everyone's really, you know, maybe a little bit not great to someone else. <laughs> um, and I think that that's what's so wonderful about it is that, you know, you sort of really push towards incredibly big dramatic themes. Uh, among them, of course, um, the discussion within this group about um, taking uh, PrEP to a, to avoid catching hiv um uh, these, these kind of discussions are going on within this, this group, but not in the way that, say, a, a book written in the nineties would have where there are life and death stakes. These are kind of more sort of about, you know, the exclusion of people who are positive or the demonization on a, on a different level, uh, than when we were talking about necessarily, um, someone dying. Uh, it's also about, you know, there's the underpinning of the marriage equality, uh, plebiscite that's going on there, but again, uh, more in this kind of slightly disconsolate way that I thought was really interestingly covered. I'd love you to talk about how um, how this kind of, you know, quiet drama plays out.
1: Right. Uh, well, for me, when I was writing it, uh, you know, uh, g- public expressions of gay life in Australia were really heightened maybe halfway through the um, through the writing process where uh, because of things like same-sex marriage, because of things like prep, um, because of things like safe schools as well. And there were other events too. Um, it seemed like public discussion of, um, of the culture and politics of being queer and gay in Australia was just suddenly like very, very, very loud. And also like behind those things, there were interesting discussions about who speaks um, interesting discussions about like what kinds of, what kinds of, um, of queer people and relationships um, are, are sort of made or allowed to stand in for others, um, which makes it very interesting when you're halfway through writing a book about, um, about white cisgender middle-class gay men. Like it means that you're suddenly writing from a more critical position and the different ways of thinking about those characters become, becomes become possible. So uh, thinking about PrEP and HIV Yes, I, I did want to depict. Um, I wanted to de- to depict a, a serodiscordant friendship, so a friendship between an HIV positive person and an HIV negative person. Uh, that was um, that was kind of commensurate with with the time with the time after antiretrovirals, so after 1996, uh, when HIV for many people is a chronic and livable illness and something that that. Um, that a lot of people have in Australia, but which is less easily dramatized um, because it because it doesn't have quite the same dramatic stakes. It has different dramatic stakes and different thematics and different aesthetics. And I wanted to play with that. Um, but I, I was mostly interested in that, I guess, as an expression of difference between the two characters. Mm. Um, you know, and and I guess differences between gay and straight or differences between kind of uh, homonormative gay people and, and radical queer people, uh, differences between masculine gay men and feminine gay men, um, differences between wealthy gay men, um, and less wealthy gay men. Like all of these things are are about power differentials and they're also about, um, well, I, I guess difference doesn't have to be about, about something in particular. It can just be about difference. And the way that I shaped the, the story, um, Around HIV was often around ways in which the narrator wanted to relate to Dan um, and wanted to wanted to be very close to Dan and then also. Uh, things that happen in the plot without spoiling it that make it really clear that they do have different bodies and different different experiences.
0: And it's sort of, it's a really, uh, there's a wonderful level of realism in how Dan is both the most woke character in many ways, but also he's moving towards a, a kind of a more traditional, I guess, uh, relationship and approach to relationships, which I thought was really delightful while at the same, well, I mean, delightfully sort of rendered in how you talk about it, um, and the narrator is being pushed more towards, uh, you know, realisation of of acceptance of difference and broadening his mind at the same time as his friends, moving more into this kind of cosy middle-class uh, sort of, you know, uh, I guess monogamy monogamy in a sense. It's a really interesting um, dynamic that you've set up between them that feels really real.
1: Oh, great. I'm glad. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, there are different ways to to look at that throughout the book. Like I think um so the the way that the narrator reacts to Dan's decisions, the you know, and and the fact that Dan is in this relationship with Lachlan, the fact that he's finished university and gotten a job, the fact that he's monogamous, the fact that his interests seem to have changed or maybe just revealed themselves in a different way. Like he's almost he's almost outraged by them. He's almost offended by by changes that he sees taking place in Dan. And I think that, that again, that's kind of testament to their closeness at the start of the book. Um, you know, that, that feeling that, that your understanding of the world is happening at the same time as you come to understand uh, a particular person, and so you can take it as a sort of personal personal attack or assault when they change their values or when they do something that you don't expect them to do. Um, but at the same time, like it's just a very sort of personal betrayal, I think expresses a political betrayal, because really the narrator and Dan do have this almost monogamous friendship, um, a very kind of uh, a very intimate friendship. And they, you know, live in a They share a domestic space together. So I think that the narrator feels kind of betrayed by the idea that Dan is um, is off doing that with someone else romantically.
0: Absolutely. Um, I don't want to give away all the twists and turns in this plot, but, uh, suffice to say, there's plenty to get your teeth into in terms of, uh, the narrator's kind of many, uh, you know, attempts at, um, I guess, crushes or love interests and how, you know, you can both be desired and not desire someone. And it does not go where you expect. You've entered on a really quite interesting flourish. So there's that to look forward to as well. Um, Ronnie Scott, I would really love to talk to you all day about this book, but unfortunately we're really running out of time. Thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory.
1: Thanks for asking such great questions, Mel.
0: That was Ronnie Scott, author of The Adversary. Out now. Up next, Anna Spargo Ryan discusses A Conspiracy of Witches, an essay exploring the terrible and dark history that made the fight for legal abortion so crucial. That's all coming up on Backstory. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Last month, Mianjin published a powerful and heart-wrenching essay, A Conspiracy of Witches. In it, author and PhD candidate Anna Spargo-Ryan examines the disturbing history that ultimately led to the legalisation of abortion, and that may emerge once more if those rights are removed. I spoke with Anna about her essay and the warnings the dark history it unearths has for our uncertain future please be advised. This discussion involves disturbing themes, including infanticide and family violence. Anna Spargo ryan welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me. Your piece uh, is really one that not just covers the usual tropes that are sort of pushed out about abortion, that's a terrible way of putting it, I'm so so sorry, Um, but it really does kind of go into the history of what I suppose uh, infanticide, uh, you know, how that sort of legal mm. premise evolved, and also the social issues that led to women needing legal abortion and needing legal protections to enable them to manage their own bodies. Um, mm. And I'm really interested in the angle that you took with this because it really does you know, undercut a lot of the main arguments um, against abortion in a way that I really haven't seen before and in a way that some people may find really quite surprising. So can you talk a little bit about where this article originated?
2: Uh, Yeah, so I am doing a, I'm a PhD candidate at Deakin at the moment and doing quite a bit of research into the Adelaide Destitute Asylum, which was um a place that was meant to support women who were living in destitution um and who were often pregnant there was a lying in hospital there where their babies were born and in researching my sorry there's a lot of family history but in researching my great-grandfather found out that he was born there and then also that he had a brother who was also born there but died and as part of that research I learned a lot about the way that women were able to or not able to control their fertility at that time. So this is the late 19th century in South Australia um, where it was quite conservative um, in many ways, a bit less conservative in some other ways, but uh, the idea that women had very little control over what they could do with their own bodies and then that led into the way that it was then managed by doctors. So it went from being a a very woman-led Exercise, which was women were the ones who delivered the babies. Women were also the ones who um, who wrote the death certificates for stillborn babies, and then the doctors evolved that into this medical model that we have now. So it was a really pivotal time for um, for women managing their own fertility
0: there's some, some real elements in this of of really showing why it is that, uh, I guess, once legal protections were put in place, um, this idea of, you know, previously what women had to do was probably more in line with the way um, that this, this headline resonates, I guess, because essentially women who didn't want to, um, you know, live with what was relegated to them mm. really had to do things um, that were not just against the law, but maybe the sorts of things they would never otherwise have chosen mm. to do. Um, so in a sense, uh, it forced people into these into kind of underground um, and really quite desperate uh, measures to try mm. and save themselves. And that sort of brings us to a topic that actually is, you know, really uh, quite a fascinating one that you brought up here and one that, that really is quite hard to read as well, and that's talk about infanticide because you've really framed it in a way here that I had never ever read before and I think is one that at once is absolutely devastating um, mm. but also really colors the kind of world that we may live in if we do um, fully uh, return to a, a situation where abortion is mm. outlawed
2: mm. yeah I mean it was interesting for me in researching this piece to learn about the rates of um, of abortion as a as a service and also about the rates of, of- dying from abortion in places where abortion is legal um, where you know compared to so the comparison between places where abortion has been rolled back or was never made legal um the rates of abortion are much higher in those places you know there's this conception that if we make it legal then people will just women and other people will just access it all the time uh where actually the opposite is true and the more that you create barriers to it it appears that the higher the rate of abortion is. Um, we, in terms of infanticide, there were a lot of issues in at this time around um, how much more accessible that was compared to an abortion. So a lot of abortionists were moonlighting doctors. Um, and so, you know, they would go to their work in the hospital as a doctor, and then in the evenings they were performing abortions for women who had no other option. Um, and as you said before, a lot of those people who were who were involved in that service were women, um, where they were kind of conspiring together with other women to make this possible for people. Um No, I've forgotten the original question that you asked. I'm sorry. Look,
0: look, sort of talking about where things, you know, we're we're sort of looking at, uh, I guess, the rhetoric that has been around um, those anti-choice movement people, I guess, is really around this idea of, you know, uh, how they characterize abortions as mm, mm. essentially um, killing an unborn child, which is uh, a really quite horrifically ironic um, way of looking at it. Given the history of abortion, suggests that not having legal abortion is much more likely to lead to actual yes. infanticide. And I thought that was a really um, mm-hmm. quite devastating component of this piece that that, in fact, for women in the late eighteen hundreds, particularly in in countries now that that have more likely access to abortion. Mm. Um, that was one of the, the primary and safest choices. Mm. Mm. Um, and many of the, the stillborn statistics you suggest were in fact, uh, elective infanticide that, um, that was really the, you know, where, Women ended up because they had so few choices. Mm.
2: Yeah, so there was a crime called concealment of birth, which was if you appeared to be pregnant and then suddenly you weren't pregnant anymore and you also didn't have a baby, that was against the law. Your neighbour or your friend could report you to the police for having a baby in secret and then disposing of it. And that seemed to happen quite a lot um, because it was the, the death rate from illegal abortion was much higher than the death rate for childbirth. And I mean, at that time, you know, the childbirth, obviously the childbirth mortality rates were much higher than they are now, but they were still much lower than having one of these kind of in the backyard or kind of bootleg abortions. Uh, So in terms of the safety for the woman who was pregnant, uh, it was safer to deliver the baby. And then there were ways to kind of to leave it without it um, without it causing additional danger to that woman or her existing family. Some of these women had eight or ten children already at home and so for them the risk that they put those existing children at by having an abortion was much greater than just, you know, moving the last most recent one along. Yeah, and I
0: think literally anyone who's read any, any kind of, you know, historical fiction or fiction written in the time periods that you're talking about, you know, the story of a foundling, mm. um, you know, a child being abandoned and someone else finding them, uh, obviously is a trope of literature. Mm-hmm. And I think perhaps people should consider why that was, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, um, very much in a sense, uh, what is the presumption that that child would actually live? I mean, that's kind of extraordinary that mm. abandonment effectively is infanticide.
2: Yes, and they would put those notices in the paper. So if you go back and look at papers from that time, there are many notices that, that report on the finding of a foundling and where it was and what it was wearing and um, and try to find the mother associated with that foundling. But, of course, they often didn't. And there wasn't really a place for them. So when I've been researching this this Asylum in Adelaide. There was also a state children's home where, you know, orphans or abandoned children went, but a foundling didn't fit into either of those places. So there was a point at which they decided that, you know, the asylum didn't have the resources to deal with motherless babies, but also the state children's home didn't have any resources to deal with tiny infants. And so these babies would just kind of get lost in the system. Someone would take them to the asylum and they would send them on to the hospital or they would send them on to the state children's home and no one took responsibility for them. So they just died
0: if you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. <laughs> I'm talking to Anna Spargo Ryan about an, you know, frankly devastating, but also incredibly, uh, important, uh, essay that was published in Mianjin recently called A Conspiracy of Witches. Uh, Anna, an author, really delves into research she's been doing as part of her PhD candidature, researching 19th century pregnancy avoidance and childbirth. Uh, what I find really interesting about this article is how you tie in obviously the historical tie. It's not just the you know you sort of touch on the the kind of I, I suppose it's terrible to put it this way, but the kind of coat hanger era mm. that mm. people often think of uh, with abortion, but rather than talking about that, you are really focusing on on you know stillbirth and infanticide and the role of that um mm. in you know that women absolutely had to look at as an option when they were desperate um, in those periods. And then you kind of compare that with what's happening now. Uh, And that's where things get really terrifying because uh, rather than this linear view of progress, uh, in fact, if anything, we seem to be returning to a much more uh, conservative and when it comes to women, um, limited era uh, in terms of freedoms, why that is important now has really struck me when you're talking about certain jurisdictions not allowing safe abortions or safe uh, mm. you know, birth control, um, av- safe and available birth control, especially now when, when people's movement is highly limited. Mm. It strikes me that, that this could be a, an incredibly devastating health crisis right now.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean there are states in the US that have rolled back abortion because of... Coronavirus, which actually just strikes me as, and many people, as just an excuse to close down services that they already wanted to, you know, they don't see it as a health service, but as this, you know, this kind of horrible, witchy um, way that women are just... You know, just ignoring the values of life and morality and, and just going and doing this thing kind of for their own enjoyment. It seems that's how it kind of comes across and, um, using this issue of, uh, of the pandemic to. Further restrict the access that women and, um, and other pregnant people have to abortion in a way that reflects the work that they were already doing to try to stop it. So, you know, that, that, um, the issue of, uh, ectopic pregnancies in Ohio, I think, uh, which was that it would be against the law for a doctor not to attempt to transfer an ectopic pregnancy from a fallopian tube into the uterus, which is physically impossible. But they coined this term that was abortion murder for a doctor who didn't attempt to do that. And that's against the laws of medicine and physics. So it, it doesn't come from a place of we want to understand how we can best support people. It comes from a, you know, just a control measure. And that's just getting worse and worse in the US now. And the way that they're doing it is this willful disregard and misunderstanding for um, science.
0: Absolutely. I think also this, you know, the idea of gender roles and and where people who can get pregnant fit in that kind of, um, you know, in that calculus because effectively uh, what seems to be happening now is that returning to a model of like having, you know, as it were, the sort of um, the man responsible for uh, both like breadwinning and, um, ef- you know, effectively not being responsible for child rearing mm. or child care mm. seems to be being entrenched by some of these returns mm. to, um, you know, to the kind of um, legal and societal attitudes mm. that we thought we'd moved on from. Um, where you sort of point out this could be even more of a problem than, the, the, than you know, the strictly, you know, very obvious one is also in a, a sort of state confirmed um family violence in a
2: sense Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's a huge a huge area of coercive control um in reproductive coercion you know either either deliberately getting someone pregnant as a as a trapping mechanism or to stop them from accessing um the required birth control or to force them manipulate them into having an abortion that kind of um control of a person's body to suit the kind of lifestyle that somebody wants is um, is a massive issue. The, I'm just looking for the statistic that I had on that, um, but it's like one in seven. Okay, here, so that it's Children by Choice, which is um, a, an Australian um, organisation for obviously for um, pro-choice, uh, says that one in seven of their clients experience reproductive coercion. Um, And three quarters of them experience it in conjunction with other forms of domestic violence. So, yeah, I mean, that's, and the funny thing is not funny, awful, that in, in history, if you look at the, that South Australian history, which is what I'm looking at, um, men had ultimate control over their children then. So if a man left his wife, he could also then stop her from seeing her children, but he didn't have to look after them. So, he could say she's not allowed to see them anymore. And as long as he was alive, he could just control the level of access that she had to them. But a lot of them didn't want any. They just didn't want the women that they had left to have it. And a man could bequeath in his will, bequeath his children away from his wife to anybody he wanted just for his kind of own control and delighting in the fact that he could. And so they didn't want the children either. It wasn't like they were forcing those women to have children because they loved them so much and they wanted so many of them. It was something else. It was just a a way of being... Yeah, like the, the masculine one who was able to have the final say on things, which is when you look at what's happening now, it's a similar thing where the men who are making these laws aren't also demonstrating their great love of protecting children who are at risk.
0: I think having um, having cho- pro-choice um, really seen as part of the overarching need for gender equality is is one of those kinds of framing mechanisms that I think is very important because I think people often just parcel out things Mm. without sort of seeing where they fit in these bigger picture um, like areas of legal change. Mm.
2: Well, what I find so interesting about infanticide is that it is a gendered law. There's no equivalent law for men. There's no men's infanticide. If a man kills a baby there is no, it, that's a manslaughter or a murder charge and not this extra layer of, um, I guess, I mean, I'd like to imagine <laughs> that it's sort of a level of compassion for um, what a woman goes through. So, you know, the way that infanticide is defined is that it happens within 12 months of a woman giving birth and if she's still breastfeeding, then that's a, that's part of it. If she has experienced postnatal depression, then that's a consideration in it and um, these sorts of, laws that and considerations in the law that are specific to the experience of childbirth and then child rearing. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it extends well beyond just just the pregnancy part. The way that these laws and rules have been developed is much more, like you said, sophisticated and complex than just, you know, what is an abortion and can I have one? But what is the purpose of Making decisions about these bodies, you, yeah, you,
0: you know? do talk. You do talk in this article about you know that idea um, of you know when uh, sort of I guess common law traditions like Roe versus Wade evolved, and when you know I guess legislation has followed. Certainly in Australia, very recently in some states yeah. um, that have enshrined some legal protections around uh, around abortion, you're sort of saying, look, we know now that's not a given anymore, that those things can be wound mm-hmm. back. Do you think, um, you know, and I guess looking at this from a historical perspective, having a more um, rigorous sort of um, anti-discrimination um, framework for a law to to be held against, whether it is um, necessarily going to be um, attacking, um, you know, women or other minority genders um, in a controlling way that is very particular to those people before, you know, you can actually pass a piece of legislation, something that's mm. been tried constitutionally even. Do you think something like that might be a necessary sh- safeguard um, for enabling laws like this mm. to become much more robust?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And yes, I think so. I mean, I think you can see that in other laws that already exist. You know, if you look, as you were suggesting, at other discrimination law that already is in place, um, I, I don't see why that doesn't also apply to this kind of access, um, and why it shouldn't. I mean, you can see that, like, in the 90s, the Roe versus Wade decision was challenged again, and it was, you know, got through a process of trying to be overturned, and, um, there's nothing to suggest that we're immune to having those rights taken away from us. Um, and so in terms of putting in protections against that, yes, I think, I think it fits well within the anti-discriminatory um, lawmaking for sure.
0: Uh, and I do have a question to ask you about this essay, which yeah. is uh, more of a write- writing question. I have to say that reading this yeah. I felt as though I wanted to keep Reading more on this, oh, topic. <laughs> particularly um, some of the historical cases that you're you're sort of describing, um, mm. I really felt like uh, nine pages was not nearly <laughs> enough. Um, even though obviously the, the the subject matter is quite harrowing, it's mm-hmm. also really important to see these things in the historical context and really consider why mm. they're so necessary. Mm. Are you? Uh, writing a book on this would you consider writing a book on this I, i would really i really feel like it would be something incredibly worthwhile
2: oh i'm glad i'm glad i mean it is harrowing content it's hard while i'm writing it to think oh god are people really going to want to read this because it's so awful um so i'm really glad that you found it compelling um i've written a novel about it um I would like to write more about it. It's a very, it's a very, very complex issue. The way I started writing about it was around um, whether women in the 19th century really had this experience of not really caring whether their children lived or died. You know, that kind of stiff upper lip. You knew that you were going to lose a certain <laughs> a certain proportion of the children that you had, and so you were sort of just resigned to it. And I was trying to find evidence of. It not being like that, you know, that people did care whether or not their children died. And that led me into this sort of infanticide side, which was that it was a very complicated issue, that there were so many mm-hmm. factors, and um being able to afford it was one, or your husband has abandoned you to go to the gold fields, and so what do you do now? And but also that there were you know personal notices in the newspaper for to memorialize babies who had been stillborn or um, you know, sadness and, and evidence of grief around miscarriage and things like that. Um, so there's there's an awful lot to learn from it that applies to what is happening now. So, yeah, I, I do hope to write more on it. Um, it has this personal connection for me as well, but it's extremely interesting and relevant to today.
0: Absolutely, and I, I certainly um, can see that that you know where you've you finish up this piece is um, is on the kind of uh, area of compassion for really understanding why it is that people um, you know do what they do, um, yeah. regardless of of people's political viewpoints, to have that essential empathy um, in yeah. terms of what it actually requires to both. Bear and rear a child <laughs> mm. not um, and, and the, the life that many women and many other uh, people of other minority genders currently experience mm. um, and may be experiencing now in, in this rather difficult time.
2: Yes, and the poem that's right at the end of this piece um, I found in the newspaper while I was doing this research and it was the first bit of real evidence that I saw that someone understood that a woman's choice was complicated she wasn't just abandoning a child. She had feelings about what might happen to that child or she had considered all of the options available to her and this was the only one or this was the best of a bad bunch or but that there were many layers to that decision-making process. And that was a really important thing to read. Did you Uh, want
0: to read that poem? Yeah, this is only part of a longer
2: poem but, yeah. Um, so this was written in the paper. Um, it's a portion of a poem called A Plea for a Foundling Hospital. And it says, Oh, with the lips apart, with a long and shuddering sob, is it strange that this failed creature's heart for her child of shame should throb? 'Tis the only love now left, yet the thought her soul alarms, that twere better she were by death bereft of the burden in her arms.' Yeah so it's absolutely heartbreaking yeah, it is <laughs> every time i read it i get like full body goosebumps but yeah i think quite a contemporary sort of idea that existed then and we we have you know the way that history is recorded means that a lot of what we read is whitewashed and also you know a lot of it is at that time is recorded by men and some of this is lost and so it's interesting to read something like that and think, no, it wasn't as straightforward as what maybe history records it as, that there were elements of trying to understand a woman's position then um, and that should now still apply to trying to understand a woman or a minority gendered person's position now, that it's not easy or straightforward for everybody and for some people it is and that's also a complex thing that we need to try to understand.
0: Absolutely. Anna Spargo-Ryan, uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, about, thank you uh, so much for having me. That was Anna Spargo-Ryan discussing her essay, A Conspiracy of Witches, published last month in Mianjin. Yes, it's time for comfort reads and meters for launch. Today's comfort read is one I thought deserved a mention – The pandemic we all find ourselves in has led to many puns on the title of this book, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera, was an influential book for me and one I've recently ordered to re-examine over the lockdown. Why not join me in reassessing this classic? I'll be posting updates on Instagram. And if you'd like to join in, tag a picture of you reading the book at backstoryrrr hashtag love in the time of lockdown and on meet us for launch this week a shout out to booked out a speaking agency that reps australian authors this week booked out launched reaching out a copyright agency funded initiative to offer online speaking sessions to victorian school kids most of whom are now learning remotely find out more at bookedout.com.au And if you want me to include your comfort read or let me know about your book for Meet Me for Launch, email me at r at gmail.com. That's r at gmail.com. You can write something for me to read. And if you want me to include your comfort read or let me know about your book for Meet Me for Launch, email me on r at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to order a copy of Love in a Time of Cholera. And tag me on Instagram at BackstoryRR, hashtag Love in the Time of Lockdown. That's all we have time for. I'd like to thank my guests, Ronnie Scott, author of The Adversary, and Anna Spargo-Ryan, author of Bianjin Essay, A Conspiracy of Witches. And our segment theme, Welcome to the Bunker Baby, is by singer-songwriter Nicola Watson. Her album is out now on Bandcamp.
1: Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7.